Hello and welcome to this GCP short produced in partnership with TMF Group and all about understanding the insurance premium tax implications of different program and captive structures. Joining me for the next 20 minutes are two members of the expert team at TMF on the complex world of IPT, Joseph Fimbo, IPT Assurance Director and Christophe Boudet, IPT Quote Content Director. We will talk through first what the different insurance structure options are, including where captives are used and what this means for IPT calculation, responsibility and compliance. Joe, as a starting point and to maybe contextualise the IPT implications, which we'll, we'll come on to, can you talk us through the different ways companies insure and retain risks, obviously self-insured, retentions, deductibles, commercial market captives, obviously direct writing and reinsurance captives, all the buzzwords yeah. we talk about in, in, in the commercial market. Talk, talk us through each of those because we're going to explain why that matters in a, in a bit. Sure, sure. So I've always thought of it as a, a, a bit of a spectrum, if you like. So at one end, you have that full self-insurance. And at the other end, you have the fully insured, insured ground-up coverage. And then in between those two points, you have varying ways in degrees in which a risk is being retained or insured. So starting at the full self-insurance, here there's no insurance contract, no risk transfer. The risk simply sits on the balance sheet of the company. If we take property as a simple example, a corporate entity could have a property with, say, a, a rebuild value of a million pounds. And they decide that if that building is totally destroyed, they'll simply pay for it to be rebuilt. But in that case, they don't have a contract of insurance. They don't have to pay any insurance premiums. Conversely, at the other end of the spectrum, a corporate could fully insure that building, paying a premium to an insurer in the uh, company market, um, any insurer that, that, that comes along and wants to take on that risk. Uh, and in return, that insurer will pay the full loss or cost of rebuilding the building. So in that example, the £1 million pounds, uh, the insured would have otherwise had to pay out of their own pocket, the insurer will pay that. But to obtain that cover the corporate insured is probably going to have to pay quite a hefty premium. Then sat in between those two extremes, there are various ways in which the corporate can retain some of the risk, thereby reducing the premium they have to pay, but still having the cover for the big losses that, that could arise. And it's this area where there can be quite a bit of innovation and, and, and different ways of tackling that issue. I suppose the simplest form of this is a deductible. So the insurance contract that you have with the insurer will provide for the fact that the policyholder has to pay some of the claim or, or claims. So in our property example, the contract might have a deductible of £200. So if there's a loss, the insured will have to pay the first £200 and then the insurer will pay everything over £200. Addressing that deductible or self-insured slice is where we start to see some of the complexity creep in. One solution is a deductible reimbursement. So this is where the policyholder funds the deductible up front to the insurer. So they sort of pay this pool of money over to the insurer, which the insurer can then call on and dip into to settle claims. Uh, and if there's any of this fund left at the end of the policy term, that fund is, is refunded to the policyholder. And this is particularly useful for covers where there's perhaps a, a high frequency of, of low value claims. 
Then another solution that we find is a deductible buy-down. So here, what's happening is the policyholder is essentially buying a second insurance policy to cover themselves against the cost of the deductible. So if they have to pay a deductible under the underlying policy, there's a claim arises and they have that, that, that deductible to pay, then they claim on the second policy, which kicks in and will pay that deductible. So you can see there are various ways in which you can start to play around with some of these ideas and determine how much of that risk you, you want to transfer out or retain within in the business. Fantastic. So presumably then, the first one you touched upon there, Joe, if a company has decided not to transfer the risk in any way and retain it on the balance sheet, that, that, that has no tax implications. That's a pretty straightforward one. Well, I mean, there's always tax implications. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, It just depends on which tax you're considering. And definitely not having to pay tax is a fairly significant implication, I would say. But thinking about your, your point there specifically and, and looking at, say, the insurance premium tax side of things, insurance premium tax is due on insurance premiums. Clue is in the name there. So yeah. if you're fully self-insured, you're paying no premiums, you've not got a contract of insurance, there won't be any IPT. Equally, if you've got a, a deductible in place, which is going to be reducing the cost of the premium, you're only going to be paying the IPT on that reduced premium value. And that can be quite an attractive proposition when looking at some of the IPT rates there are out there, looking at 19% IPT in Germany, 21% in the Netherlands, 24% in Finland. I mean, even in, in the UK, 12% extra cost, which we have from the, the UK IPT, is, is a significant addition to, to any premium. But that does then need to be weighed up against the risk of not having the cover in place or not having enough cover in place and the loss that could be suffered, which, if it did happen, could well outweigh the savings made on not paying any IPT there. Of course, yeah. And there are other financial advantages as well to obviously having cover structured in a way through, through insurance, whether it's the commercial market or risk transferring to your own captive insurance company. So in this hard market, Joe, of, of the past three years plus now, I don't think there's any sign of it ending anytime soon. We have heard a lot about increasing deductibles and uh, self-insured retentions involving a captive and a captive's involved in the structure. What are some of the IPT implications to be mindful of there? Well, I suppose it links back to what I was just saying there. If there's no insurance premium, there's no IPT. That's the nub of what we're, we're tackling. But as soon as you introduce a captive into the mix, and, and bear in mind here that captives are regulated insurance companies or, or entities of some sort, it's much more likely that what you have there is a contract of insurance. And once you have that contract of insurance, IPT most likely needs to be paid. This can, when you're looking at it, sort of stepping back from, from, from the arrangement and looking at it, can seem a bit odd. I mean, uh, the risk is still sitting in the corporate group. It's just sat in a different entity uh, within that group. So the group hasn't got rid of the risk. Uh, why should it matter that the risk is sat with the parent or the captive? Well, it's because there has been a risk transfer, and because of that, there might be a contract of insurance. You may have noticed that I am being a little bit careful in my language, uh, my use of language here, using lots of coulds, mights, perhaps. Yeah. And that's not just because I'm a, a tax type that refuses to commit to anything. You do need to look closely at what is actually happening in these scenarios. This analysis isn't helped by the fact that the term insurance 
is rarely clearly defined in IPT law, if it's defined at all. So if we look at the UK IPT regime, the UK authorities are quite clear. There is no statutory definition of insurance. Instead, they are saying there are indicators of an insurance contract. So things that could suggest that what we have is a contract of insurance. So that might be a a legally enforceable contract. The insured uh, may be paying a premium. The insurer is indemnifying them against losses. There might be an insurable interest there. You know, lots of different aspects which indicate that there might be an insurance contract. Now, you can start to see that even with the captive in place, some of these deductible arrangements might not fit nicely into that clear definition or into a clear definition of insurance. So if we look at that deductible buy-down idea again, if the policyholder just holds on to that deductible and pays any deductible on claims that arise, there won't be any IPT. But if that deductible is moved into the captive and the captive will pay the deductible, then IPT well may well be due on that risk transfer or insurance contract. But as you said earlier, Richard, IPT probably isn't going to be the main driver for decisions around retaining risk. The cost of the premiums, claims, the administration may be a, a much more significant uh, factor or set of factors to, to think about. But that IPT cost is certainly one that needs to be thrown in the mix there. Yeah, really interesting, Joe. And that that fact that often insurance isn't kind of clearly defined within IP or within IPT or, or VAT um, uh, language is is one also our American listeners will be familiar with kind of in that debate regarding what counts as insurance and federal income tax purposes. It's, it's a different debate, but it's that it's that kind of consistent thing of insurance is kind of sometimes a little bit vague of what is and what isn't insurance, and that's often where the rub is. Joe, just a, a supplementary question there, if I may. Do you find then, because those different implications can kick in at different points of the policy, if depending on the deductibles, et cetera, do you have conversations with clients about those different implications when they're trying to set up what the right structure is for them to do in terms of the ultimate kind of total cost of risk transfer? Unfortunately, those conversations arrive far too often, far too late. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and once, once the arrangement's been put in place, suddenly there's this tax liability, suddenly tax registrations need to get in place and uh, sort of rushing to catch up. So being aware of not only the cost, but the obligations, uh, that's quite a key one. Yeah, and some listeners might be very familiar with this and, and think, yeah, this all sounds right to me. But I, I, I have heard some horror stories of some very, very, very large, what you'd think are sophisticated companies running into that exact problem. A few months after the policy started, and they suddenly realize that they, they've got these extra liabilities or, or responsibilities. So yes, that, that's a story I've heard before. Christoph, how about direct writing captives and IPT? So direct writing captives in a nutshell is, is common in the EU, particularly uh, where uh, within the EU, if you're an insurance company, you can write across uh, the EU. Um, so where is the responsibility there for, for a captive writing write direct insurance? I won't use some codes and might here, but yeah, I will add uh, another bit of careful language and go with it depends. So <laughs> the, the, the IPT implications depend on the setup of the insurance program of your captive. In other words, uh, we need to consider where the captive is domiciled, where the captive is licensed, and where the risk uh, is located in order to, to assess the tax liability accurately. So, yeah, you mentioned the EU side. I'm going to take a couple of examples here. Uh, so starting with the European side, we consider first a captive domicile in the 
European Economic Area, so that includes the uh, European uh, Union, and writing on uh, what we call a freedom of service basis. Uh, here we're talking uh, about an insurance program covering only European countries uh, where that uh, specific freedom of service regime applies. So to make it short, uh, the freedom of service uh, regime, it provides a sort of uh, automatic license to the insurer, which means that the insurer can write in all EA countries the same way that if it would be writing uh, only on its uh, domestic market. So we can say that uh, here the tax implication are in some way harmonized uh, in the sense that the responsibility to file IPT will lie with the, the insurer and uh, in our situation, uh, the captive. So the captive will have the ability to register uh, for tax purposes in all the uh, EA jurisdictions where risks uh, are located and file the IPT return in all these uh, different uh, jurisdictions. However, if we talk about uh, tax cost and tax filing process, yeah, in that case, there's no harmonization at all. For the same risk covered, you can have uh, an IPT calculated at 2% of the premium, for instance, in Bulgaria, with a return that is filed on a quarterly basis there. While in Finland, uh, you will have to pay IPT uh, at a significantly increasing rate of 24% of the premium with a return filed uh, every month uh, and uh, for that same uh, risk. So that's that's our situation, I would say, in, in Europe. If now uh, we consider a captive domicile in, uh, in any country uh, and writing worldwide on a cross-border basis, but uh, excluding the, the EEA, for our example, uh, here the captive is not likely to be licensed in most of the territories where uh, risks are covered. So as we can expect, uh, the implication will uh, totally differ. First, uh, the responsibility to file the tax is likely to fall on the local insured, as the captive is not, is not licensed, therefore normally should not be able to register for tax purposes. And to expand on this, let's take the, the case of a captive uh, based in Bermuda, uh, writing a uh, multi-country program, for instance, including uh, Canada. So the local insured will have to deal with the filing and the payment uh, of the excise tax uh, at federal level in Canada, uh, but also with the local taxes, so usually uh, we're talking about the IPT, uh, in one or several uh, Canadian provinces or territories, so for instance, uh, Quebec and uh, Ontario. A couple of additional points, uh, if I may. Uh, when we talk about IPT, uh, we should bear in mind that uh, IPT is not the only tax that might be due on uh, on insurance premium. You have a large range of parafiscal charges in some jurisdictions that come on top of IPT, uh, so like fire taxes on property insurance and uh, contribution and levies that are due to uh, local guarantee funds uh, on motor programs uh, usually. So lots of jurisdictions also have stamp duties in place that are applicable on insurance, where here the, the, the administrative burden can be very high for most of the time a limited amount of tax due. Sometimes they are just uh, one payment and filing at the, uh, at the beginning of the policy. So then the cost of the tax must also be taken into account. So most of the taxes due on insurance premium can, can be charged on the insured entity. Some charges yeah, should be borne, we say, by the, by the insurer and therefore the captive and deducted from, from the insurance premium uh, collected. So I'm not mentioning reinsurance pools here, but in some countries you might have the obligation to reinsure your program or part of it uh, to local pools, which is, as we can expect, another layer of complexities uh, in terms of compliance. 
Great. Thank you, Christoph. Yeah, the more you talk about it, the, the more that complexity really comes becomes clear uh, in terms of the different taxes which are applied to insurance premiums. In, 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 and it's different, of course, from country to country. So uh, finally, Christoph, uh, one area we haven't talked about in much detail so far is reinsurance captives, a very common structure for a captive if a program is normally then fronted by a commercial carrier, a fronting company in the local uh, territories. Who is responsible for administering and paying the IPT in a, in a, in a fronted program? So in a fronting program, yeah, the, the things, uh, things are different. The good news is that the insurance captive is really from most of the tax burden. The commercial carrier yeah, will be, uh, uh, will be uh, first in line to, to handle the tax. So if we take, again, our two uh, examples, first in case of a fronted uh, European program, it is straightforward. The, the commercial carrier will have to deal with the premium tax filings instead of the captive as the, the insurance premium is paid to the insurer fronting the program. And then for cross-border program outside the EEA, the insurance captive will also remain out of the tax filing picture as far as the insurance program is concerned, uh, as again, the liability will mostly fall on the local insured, considering that the commercial carrier, the main carrier, the head office, is not likely to be licensed and registered in most of the countries uh, where risks uh, are covered. However, when we talk about uh, fronting insurers and global uh, global insurers, we can expect that they have uh, various uh, entities around the world. And uh, in that case, yeah, instead of covering the, the risk through a master, they can, uh, they can use local policies uh, that may be included uh, within the program. So if that's the case, then it's the, the local entity of the fronting uh, insurer that is most likely to be licensed and therefore that should be responsible for the, the, the filing of uh, premium uh, taxes. Uh, but, and to respond to the second part of your questions, on the reinsurance side, the captive will not be fully spared from the, the tax burden. In many jurisdictions, it is true that uh, reinsurance is generally exempt from IPT. However, in uh, lots of cases, we can see that premiums seeded out of the countries are usually taxed not with IPT, but through some uh, uh, withholding uh, tax uh, schemes. In this situation, the captive should not have to take care of the tax filing as uh, the sedent is uh, normally registered there and will pay the reinsurance premium net of tax uh, uh, to the reinsurance captive and paying the withholding tax uh, to the local uh, tax authorities. It's not the end of the road yet in terms of compliance. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for the complexity. As double tax treaty can kick in and uh, reduce or increase the tax liability for the, the, the reinsurance captive. And on that note, uh, another thing to consider, uh, it's the rate of the withholding tax uh, that is to be paid. We know that captives sometimes suffer from a bad reputation, in particular due to their, due to their uh, domiciles that are often viewed or listed as uh, tax havens. And in some jurisdictions, uh, on reinsurance premiums seeded out of the country, the withholding tax rate uh, may differ depending on the domicile of the captive. And for instance, uh, uh, if the captive is domiciled in a country uh, considered uh, as a tax haven by the local jurisdiction, then the withholding tax on the reinsurance premium uh, will be higher. So we have uh, uh, an example, for instance, in, in Ecuador, that we have such a different uh, rates uh, in place. 
Well, thank you to Joe and Christoph at TMF Group for that discussion. TMF really do work with a wide range of captives around the world of various sizes, as well as the commercial market, some of the largest commercial insurers there are. So they are a great resource when assessing the position of your own captive program. If you'd like more information on TMF and their captive services, then do visit their friend of the podcast page on the globalcaptivepodcast.com website or find links in the episode show notes. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives. Mm -hmm.